We return this morning to a passage we dealt with, oh gosh, five, six, seven weeks ago. Our theme this morning has to do with freedom. We find Paul and Silas, or during the course of the passage, we find them in jail. So the theme of freedom is surely a pertinent one. I invite you to join me in a prayer of illumination as we prepare to read scripture. Let us pray. O Lord, while songs of our nation's birth ring in our hearts, remind us to celebrate above all the oneness of the human race you have created and the openness of the church you have loved. Some of us come to worship with hearts full of joy and others come with holes in our hearts. Some of us come weighed down with worry and others come with peace and calm. Some of us come assailed by doubts and others come with unwavering certainty. However we come, O God, here we are with gratitude for the freedom to worship as we choose. Now we ask that you silence in our hearts any voice but your own, that hearing scripture read and proclaimed, we might become the humble servants you call us to be for the glory of your name. Amen. From the 16th chapter of Acts, beginning with verse 16, One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. When morning came, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrates sent word to let you go, therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and now we are going to dis and now are they going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Amen. I dare suspect that many of you here in some way celebrated our nation's independence this 4th of July week. A cookout, eating a hot dog or hamburger perhaps, displaying the American flag, watching one of the various fireworks displays. As our time here is winding down, we clicking off things that we want to do, we chose to go over to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, that remarkable, disturbing, emotional testament to one of the darkest days in the history of our country, an experience which will surely raise a lump in your throat several times, and surely those of you who have gone to the museum have experienced that. And afterwards, we walked down to Battery Park and sat a while looking across the water at the Statue of Liberty. You know, the beacon of freedom which has inscribed at its pedestal the words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. And the irony was obvious. On the one hand, those who sought to destroy the American ideal of freedom while on the other, those who sought its shore to share in that ideal. It's a struggle that continues to this day, tugging at the heart and soul of this country, tearing apart its very fabric, perhaps in ways from which this republic can never recover. History will tell us. Our passage in Acts has to do with freedom, not freedom in the sense of nationhood or independence, but freedom of another sort, a freedom transcending ideals of nationhood and independence, a freedom which endures even after nations totter and fall. Consider the, girl, the, consider the characters, the girl, ironically a slave, but one who possesses a spirit of divination, which enables her to see, at least in this instance, a great truth. The girl's owners, angry at Paul for interrupting their money-making scheme, 
Paul and Silas imprisoned and in shackles. The magistrates bound by the whims of an angry mob. The jailer ready to kill himself when misfortune strikes. While the theme of, of slavery and freedom is obvious, it, never, it nevertheless flip-flops conventional wisdom as, as L. Gregory Jones shares about this passage through the twists and turns of the story, we are invited to discover that th those who were enslaved and imprisoned, the poor girl, Paul and Silas, are actually free. And those who think they are free, the girl's owners, the judges, the jailer, are actually in bondage. With whom do you identify in this story? The one free, the one in bondage. Our country guarantees certain freedoms. We are guaranteed certain rights by our Constitution. And yet, despite the measure of freedom we enjoy here, despite the civil liberties granted to us, guaranteed to us by our Constitution, does that freedom truly make us free? You know, ministers have the tendency to have a file of illustrations, stories, jokes, etc., from which to pull for sermon fodder. An article I keep in that folder recalls that, and I quote, In 1967, testimony before a Senate subcommittee indicated that by 1985, people could be working just 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year or could retire at 38. That would leave only the great challenge of finding a way to enjoy all that leisure, that freedom. Yet, as the article goes on to explain, exactly the opposite has occurred. The rat race demands more and more and more time, more time at the office, more time on the road. One of the ongoing themes in conversation I have about issues of faith in the marketplace is the sense that rather than controlling our lives, our lives are controlling us and we're seemingly helpless in the face of it. Freedom, we say we are free, and yet we have men and women who have heart attacks in their 50s and 40s and even 30s from stress and overwork. We say we are free, and yet we live in a country which consumes an incredible amount of tranquilizers and anti-anxiety medications in order to function, where opioid addiction is a national calamity, a public health issue. We say we are free, and yet we, we have men and women work 80 and 90 and 100 and 120 hour work weeks trying to get ahead in the process, overeating, overdrinking, neglecting their bodies and mental health and families in the process. Instead of working to live, so many of us live to work. William Will Willimon, former dean of Duke University Divinity School and presently a bishop in the United Methodist Church in Alabama, in his commentary on this passage, shares an experience. He said, after I spoke at a conference on women in the church, someone rose and said, the federal government has done more for the cause of women in this country than the church ever thought about. At last, because of government help, Women are enabled to be on an equal level with men in the workplace. Whether that's true or not is up for debate. 
Willimon goes on to continue, continues, and, and I just heard on the radio that for the first time in history, the rate of lung cancer among women is as high as it is among men. The rate of hypertension, heart disease, and other stress-related diseases is climbing among women, and some feel that in the not-too-distant future, the lifespan of the average American female will have shrunk to that of the average American male. In the words of Willimon, there is freedom and then there is freedom. What kind of freedom makes us truly free, or on what is true freedom based? It is clear that free democratic societies, though we wouldn't trade them, do not in and of themselves guarantee happiness or peace of mind or mutually satisfying relationships or even beyond that, responsible stewardship of the environment or adequate care for the poor and lonely. At least living in a free society isn't enough to, for thousands and thousands of teenagers who commit suicide each year. It isn't enough for thousands of unwed mothers or to abused and battered wives or to kids strung out on crack. Nor does living in a, a free society prevent thousands from finding solace in alcohol, overindulgence, recreational drugs. Millions around the world, many who already named themselves Christians, are searching for that something, that free society alone, with its armies and navies, with its taxes or tax breaks, with its corporate bonuses or corporate welfare, whatever your perspective and political ideology, cannot deliver a sense of meaning, peace of mind, a sense of belonging, the peace which passes all understanding. After being ready to kill himself, the jailer sees and wants what Paul and Silas have. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He could just as well have asked, Sirs, what must I do to have the freedom to live as you live? What must I do to face adversity with confidence and serenity? What must I do to be like you, chained in shackles, yet free? Believe in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your family, Paul says. Sounds simple, doesn't it? On the face of it, it sounds downright naive. But it only makes sense when one realizes that Luke is talking about more here than simple intellectual assent. For beyond belief, and in, and in this case, before belief, there is experience. It wasn't Jesus' belief in God that made him unique, but it was his experience of God's life-giving spirit. There's an inextricable link between biblical belief and trust. It was Jesus' total trust in God that made him unique, that ushered in belief. It was the jailer's experience of the power of this spirit as witnessed, evidenced by Paul and Silas that issues in the trust that leads to a new life, to freedom. And in submitting to baptism, the jailer becomes a part of the community of faith, the church. And it is in and through this community of faith that he, along with his family, and along with men and women of all ages and all times, are introduced to the freedom that is God's freedom, that transcendent freedom which lifts us, lifts us above and beyond nationhood and ideology.
Surely the church is just as susceptible to sin as we are as individuals. But what the church does have is a model. Jesus Christ, who experienced God in a unique and special way. For freedom Christ has set us free, Paul writes. And the freedom in Christ is found as we become part of his body here on earth, as we share in his ministry of love and compassion, as we trust God in our daily routines. Charles Labor writes, the church is a revolutionary power, but the Christian revolution is not a, re a revolt of violence. It is an inevitable and righteous revolution which demands that things be changed and people made free. There are many, perhaps here, surely in our communities and society who are hurting, who are angry, who are resentful. Many are bound by fears, by the past, by grief, by disappointment, by prejudice. And the good news is that in Christ the slate is wiped clean. You're free to start over. And whereas the church cannot and should not be a therapist, though the church is far from perfect, though the church is not free from the stain of human sin, still it is the body of Christ, and it is the vehicle through which God, started, God decided to start a revolution. And you are, and I are invited to take part in it, a revolution to heal and restore the planet, a revolution to heal and make right unjust institutions and ideologies, to heal and restore broken relationships. And it is in this fellowship, in its worship, in its sacraments, and most of all in its ministry, one can find, like the jailer, the peace of Christ which passes all understanding. And trust me, therein is found freedom, despite outward circumstance, freedom. Christ tells us, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. May we each find and open the transcendent freedom found only in God.